You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show. Find me online at JackieDaly.com, on Facebook if you must, uh, and on the app formerly known as Twitter, now the X, at Jackie Daly Host, and subscribe for free just about anywhere where quality podcasts are found. All right, one of my favorite things that President Trump says on a regular basis, as he should, is that if he were in charge, there would not be a war in Ukraine, and there would not be a war in the Middle East right now, at least not Hamas versus Israel. Um, This is so true, and I think the point is lost for why it's so profound. He's not just saying people feared this country and respected us when I was in charge. That's one thing, and he is saying that. But beyond that, I think he's the first president since George Bush Sr. to truly understand oil and gas and bad actors and petrostates and what happens when there's too much money in the hands of bad guys, our enemies, particularly Russia and, and Iran in the Middle East. Um, you, can, you can trace this on a, on a graph and see perfectly how the fortunes of Russia and Iran are up when you have bad leadership in this country pushing against American oil and gas. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, it shouldn't be this way. Oil and gas or climate change, more broadly, is the most polarized issue in polls, if you can believe that. It's more polarized than abortion. It's more polarized than race or immigration. For whatever reason, if you tell me what you believe about climate change, I can tell you pretty much who you voted for in the last presidential election, as it's the best predictor out there, Uh, which goes to show it's not about science. But the point is this. Everything that benefits the green agenda harms U.S. oil and gas production and oil and gas production in all free countries. So think about your British common law countries, whether it's the U.K., the U.S., Canada, Australia. We all have basically First Amendment rights of free speech, um, freedom to assemble and protest. So the movement, the green movement, has impact here. It's huge. It's huge. And they can put you know, over a billion dollars a year into PR and advertisements and whatever. Um, that is not existing in Riyadh or Tehran or Moscow. You're not going to see them showing up in Riyadh to protest. So the, the free speech and the advocacy is only effective against free countries that have these freedoms. And it hurts. It really does hurt. I mean, early on in the Biden administration, I was keeping count of how many uh, hostile policies I could identify. I, I quit counting after 90. I mean, anything and everything that they could do, and most of it you never hear about because it's in the courts or it's in the executive agencies, but it's going on. There's a war going on. Um, here's the deal. Trump did everything he could to hit the accelerator on U.S. oil and gas. He understood this is the fundamental foundational input into the economy. All other businesses rely on it. There's no exception to the rule. There is no business out there, you can't name one, that doesn't use electricity, which is mostly natural gas or coal, um, or, or transportation fuel, so which is 90% oil-derived. So he understands this and did everything that he could to make us the strongest player in the world. So no longer do we say, you know, uh, the U.S. is the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. We're the Saudi Arabia of oil. We're the Saudi Arabia of of nuclear. We're the Saudi Arabia of coal, of everything. So we became number one. Don't get me wrong, that's not all presidential. 
uh, presidents can only, you know, put their boot on the neck of the producers or or help them by getting off their back. <clears throat> but the point is, Trump was the wide open, all the way, hard as we can go president. And you have a Democrat who's going exactly the opposite direction, as hard as he can, as fast as he can. And this is a simple supply and demand issue. Uh, the more oil you put on the world market, the cheaper it is. The less you have, the less expensive it is. So let's imagine for a second, uh, you are a petrostate dictator, which, funny that, is most of our problems in the world. Um, almost all terrorism is funded by petrostate dictators, those who rely on oil and gas almost exclusively for their revenues. Try to imagine that. It's the only game you've got if you are Russia or Iran or Iraq or Syria. Uh, There's so many of these countries, and they're always the trouble. Contrasted to United States, we only rely on oil and gas for about 8% of our revenues. Uh, So we've got, you know, manufacturing, entertainment, IP, finance, you name it. We've got it here. So we're diversified. We don't live or die by the price of oil, but other countries do, which is why throughout our lifetime, until the fracking revolution, all that they had to do if they needed revenue or wanted money as a wealthy dictator is start a war or even a civil skirmish, or even launch some pirates into the right parts uh, of the shipping lanes. And just like that, with conflict, the price spikes and the revenues go up. How easy is that? So that explains a lot of what goes on. You know, They'll try to stir it up in their neighboring country they don't like, maybe. Uh, But whatever they can do, Iran with its proxies, I mean, Iran is all over the Middle East, all over over it. I saw, it was, it was very unfair, um, Elon Musk had a, a map of Iran and showed all of these American flags along the edge of Iran and all of these neighboring countries, whether it's Syria or Iraq or whatever. And, and, you know, he captioned it something like, it's so unfair. You know, I don't know why they would be nervous or worried about us. And it's like, excuse me. Okay, now do all the Iranian flags everywhere that they have their operatives throughout the Middle East. And you'll get the real picture of what's going on. But they can only do these things if they can afford it. War requires a lot of money and a lot of fuel, especially. Um, In fact, I have, I pulled out one of my favorite books. It's called Oil and War, How the Deadly Struggle for Fuel in World War II Meant Victory or Defeat. It was also true in World War I, and it will be true in World War III, which will happen. Uh, the end of history has not passed us, department, you know, despite what the State Department says. It's actually a thing, the end of history. Um, I'm arguing, and this is controversial, but I can prove it, that the point of the Green Movement is to make sure that we can't do, that is the U.S., what we did in World Wars One and Two, because three is on the way. In the first two World Wars, the U.S. supplied between 70 and 80 percent of the fuel to the Allies. There is no way those two wars would have turned out the way they did if we hadn't have had West Texas, excuse me, East Texas in that case, in World War I, uh, fuel to make its way over to the East Coast and to ship out. And not long ago, I did a great piece on the little big inch 
which is literally 16,000 Americans, came together and built a massive pipeline, biggest of its kind at the time, from Texas to Pennsylvania, uh, to the East Coast, New Jersey, actually, uh, just to get oil up there for the war effort. And that was a a miraculous feat at the time, like in record time, how how quickly they knocked it down. Because why? German U-boats were taking out tankers by the dozens off the coast of Florida. People don't remember all of this. I mean, this is erased from your history books, but we were trying to ship oil across the Gulf Coast, up the East Coast, and the Germans were right here taking them out. Imagine all the oil that hit the uh, Caribbean at that time. It's a big deal. But the point is, whoever has access to the oil supply wins. You cannot believe the difference this makes. And I think that the uh, OPEC members in Russia are funding the green movement, and I'll get into that later. I also have the proof for that. Um, no matter what the Washington Post says, I'll tell you otherwise. And they're doing that because they don't want us to be able to do what we did in World Wars One and Two to win a war. It's that simple. Um, because it is, it's, it's that serious. If you are Russia or Iran, um, just to make this point acutely, let's, go, let's take Russia. 2014, fracking revolution hits its peak. Oil collapses to $26 a barrel. You know, contrast that to its height of $147 a barrel right before the financial collapse. The Russian ruble tanked 40% in two months. At that time, after uh, OPEC came together for the regular meetings and said, yeah, despite this oil price, we're not going to uh, adjust our production. And the Russian ruble tumbled. Try to imagine the American dollar tumbling 40% in two months. How desperate would we be? What wouldn't you do to save your country when you know, in their case, when more than half of your exports are oil and gas, when more than half of your budget is met by oil and gas revenues, all you need is for that price to go up. You don't need anything else. You don't care how it gets there. And throughout our lifetime, all they had to do was start a war. And as you might know, the Russians are back in the Middle East uh, through Syria and elsewhere for the first time in decades after uh, Barack Obama weakened us so badly with the pullout of Iraq. And so they got it. There was, there was a time when, when the fracking revolution had hit, was full, full stride, Trump was in office. And I remember counting the wars in the Middle East, and there were five. And still, the price was not spiking. So the question is, how many wars does it take to spike the price of oil post-fracking revolution in oil-producing countries? Well, the answer is more than five. We know that much for sure. Okay, I have to take a break, but I'll pick this up again. When we come back, you're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. And listen, I've been telling you for years that these countries that are reliant on oil and gas um, will do whatever it takes to get those prices to go up. There was a time when Libya, like right after the uh, Muammar Gaddafi catastrophe and, and death, needed over $270 a barrel to make their budget. Okay, so absolutely impossible. Um, Nigeria would be way above $100 a barrel. Like they're just not going to make it. Um, Saudi Arabia is interesting because you might recall during the Trump years, they were tapping into that sovereign wealth fund because oil prices were so low. 
And I mean, you know, it was a like estimated $800 billion tapping down, you know, every single month for what they needed to make their budget because they give their people lavish subsidies. If you're in oil country, you don't need to bother to build an economy. You don't. You didn't. Why? Because, you know, imagine the history of these countries. Uh, after World War I, we pretty much just drew them up. Not us, but the Brits and the French and others. And um, with no regard for ethnic lines, um, it's, it's, it's a, you know, some people think it was the greatest thing that ever happened because they drew it to make sure that the minorities were in charge in these countries to try to keep conflict down. But the bottom line is there was nothing there until the Industrial Revolution slash Western countries went in to develop the oil. So the Brits went in in 1901 to Persia. We now call it Iran. And uh, for seven years, toiled away in the desert, trying to get oil out. It's a great story about how they finally gave up. After seven years, it's 1908, and they sent a notice from the UK to Iran saying, tell them our patience is up, the money is cut, no more, and we're out of here. Let's go. Before they could get the message to Iran, they hit oil and hit it huge, huge, Huge. This is the Anglo-Persian oil company. Now it's called BP, British Petroleum. But so the Brits had locked up Iran, and that was going to be their source for, you know, the power of the country, for their changing their ships in World War I from coal, which was Welsh and homegrown, home, homemade coal, uh, to Persian oil. <clears throat> and then about 20 years later, maybe 30 years later, the United States began locking up its alliances with the Gulf states, most especially Saudi Arabia. So an agreement was made informally. They would supply us with oil. That's how we became a superpower in large part. Um, And we would supply security to them. And this relationship continued, as you know, for a long, long time. If you go to the Bush Library right here in Dallas and you walk in, first photo you'll see is President George W. Bush holding hands with the Saudi king walking in a field in Crawford, Texas. Not a coincidence. Um, and of course, his father being a pretty big deal in oil and in the CIA and at the Houston Petroleum Club and the Midland Petroleum Club. Uh, long, long history there. So this is how things divided up. Um, these countries, uh, well, Iran in particular, realized they got a really raw deal with the British situation. Because imagine they hit oil before... There was even a, a Model T automobile. People didn't understand. They knew it was a big deal, but no one realized what a big deal oil was at that time. So the Iranians were just giving it away practically to the Brits. And eventually, you know, OPEC gets a little resentful uh, when, when the modernized and motorized economies come into being. And they form OPEC around 1960. And they're the cartel. It would be illegal in this country to behave the way they do. But people just accept it because what are you going to do about it? There's not a whole lot you can do about it. Um, But they loved the control they had as a monopoly um, until the American shale revolution hit, um, which when I say shale revolution, I'm talking about fracking or hydraulic fracturing. It's actually been around since just after the Civil War. But back then, it just amounted to, you know, dropping a piece of dynamite into a 70-foot well in Pennsylvania or something. I don't recommend that. I know a certain member of Congress who's done that, actually, and I I won't give you his name. Uh, I hear it's really exciting and fun. 
but I don't think they'll let you do that anymore. Uh, starting in the 1940s, uh, though, commercially, we began fracking, but it's nothing like it was today. Today, it's all about uh, going horizontal uh, in many layers or stacks underground with you know, minor explosions. Maybe they're major explosions, but they're a mile underground. You'll never know. It. And um, anyway, it caused us to double, more than double, actually, the amount of oil that we produce in this country. So much so that the monstrous Permian Basin out in West Texas produces more oil all by itself than all members of OPEC, except for Saudi Arabia. That's what a big deal it is. Game changer, which is how we became the Saudi Arabia of everything. Before that, um, only oil and, or I mean, only gas and coal. So this is great. And for the first time, if OPEC decided they wanted to take oil off the market to spike the price, or they wanted to start a war somewhere, which would knock production off in that country and spike the price, we would just put more on the market and take that market share. It was great. And I thought for the first time in my life, we're not going to have to deploy people to the Middle East to secure an oil supply. This is amazing. And so it's part of why I even was inspired to start the show. It's like to prevent World War III and other wars in the Middle East. Um, if you understand oil and park the price, which is hard to do, there are a lot of factors, but as best you can, aim for the price that keeps these countries fed, right? So they're not starving and they're, they're not about to default on their debt. You don't want that situation because then they will pull a Russia and get, get desperate and start stealing things. I don't know. You know, Ukraine has some nice shale fields, for example, um, that are worth having both in the East and in the West. And there are some American oil men from here in Texas who have gone to try to help develop. But they went over there and I've heard from two different groups that don't even know each other. They took trips to Ukraine and they came back, or actually three, three, I can think of off the top of my head. And they came back and said, you know what? No way. No way are we trusting the Ukrainians because that country ranks, I think, number four in corruption right behind Russia. So no one wants to do business there because they, didn't, they couldn't believe anything anyone was saying. However, comma, if you're Russia, to take it over would be quite attractive. You don't have to trust anyone but yourself. Um, and you can see why they'd want it. And there's a whole lot more beyond just shale fields in Ukraine that's worth having, uh, natural resources and otherwise. But back to, um, again, President Trump saying there wouldn't be wars in Ukraine and, and uh, Israel. I believe that. Simply because you, you need so much money to run a war and so much fuel. And if, you know, if Russia's tumbling 40% in two months, as I said earlier, there's no way. There would be, if that were still going on, if oil prices were half of what they are right now, no way would there be an I, There's no way. There's, there's no way. They would barely be able to keep operational and not default. So I, I happen to know uh, that President Trump had some of the best energy advisors, because I can name several of them, uh, when he was there. I also believe strongly there was never a president that had those types of advisors. Um, before him, the closest would be George W. Bush, and those would have been the Houston Petroleum Club people. Very different than the Trump people in this way. Uh, the, for example, the Houston Club, the Petroleum Club, it's the most exclusive club on earth, by the way. I think there are 500 billionaires that belong. Yeah. And um, very different from the Midland Petroleum Club. Um, 
which also has quite a few billionaires uh, in there. But the, here's the difference. Houston is your, your you know, Dick Cheney, Halliburton types, your Exxon types, your total big oil. All the shakes are there. The Russians are there. Everybody's there. This is the globalist, you know, uh, I mean, for example, Exxon operates in over 150 countries. So clearly their goals and their concerns are very different than the Midland people, which is more the Trump people. Those are people who generally only operate in the United States or maybe a few other countries, but it's still more of an American-based and American-focused group. They are in the American shale plays. They're in the Permian, which is West Texas, Eagleford, South Texas. Um, and then, you know, when you move up to other places, Marcellus is like a monster natural gas shale play in Pennsylvania, New York, the Bakken up in North Dakota. There's so much here in America now. You have a bunch of people who are American independent oil companies, is what we call them, versus big oil. And they're completely different. They care about what Washington is doing to oppress them here. So do the big companies, but they're less concerned because, hey, they're operating in 150 countries. It spreads a lot of risk. So even if the United States goes bad on them and their competition here at home, they still have plenty going on uh, in the Middle East and North Africa and South America or whatever. Two very different groups of people. It explains in part why the Bush people are so different than the Trump people. You see that divide, I'm sure, not just in energy, but everywhere else too. And so... I think Trump cared about an America first approach to energy, which is a complete anathema to the people in Houston. They are not America first energy policy at all. They're, they're my company first or, you know, um, Houston oilmen first. No offense to Houston oilmen. There are plenty of good ones down there. But <clears throat> I'm saying if you're a, a multinational company, it's the opposite. This, this, this is why the American Petroleum Institute, the API, is so different from um, the, the independents. There, you know, there's there's one API, which is basically Exxon and Chevron and those guys, and then there are several uh, organizations that represent everybody else. The 95 percent of the rest of American oil companies and gas companies uh, who are not those big guys that have been around since the beginning of time. You know, the Rockefeller Seven Sisters. You know. Uh, children, offspring. So it's important to understand the difference. You'll get different advice from the two. I mean, you've got API, for example, um, the big guys arguing for things like carbon taxes or methane regulation or you know things that no sane oil company would ever want. But they know that their competitors cannot possibly keep up with that. They cannot possibly afford to hire the legion of lawyers and regulators and everybody else that you'd have to have to comply uh, with all of this regulation, so it would take out their competition is the bottom line. They can move in there for very cheap and uh, and take their their uh, business away from them. So that's part of what's going on. But the president was listening to the little guys, the America First guys, my people, the, the people I'm here to, to defend, really. Uh, I'm not here to, to defend Exxon and Chevron and Shell. I'm not, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but the president got it. And actually, there's a lot more I could say about that. Um, but I think that I have to go to break, it looks like. So I'll take a break. I'll be right back. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Find me online at JackieDaly.com and on the X at Jackie Daly Host. All right, listen, um, let me give you some color 
to what's happening in Iran and uh, the neighboring countries as it concerns Israel and others. Um, I'm going to draw from one of my favorite writers, Daniel Jurgen. He has a book called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. You've probably heard his other books or heard of his other books, The Prize and the Quest. I've read them both twice. They are the best histories of oil um, and world politics and world wars that I've found anywhere. I, I love them. I, I marked them up. I outlined them, shared them with you before. Um, very few people have the expansive knowledge he does about geopolitics. So here's what he says, and I, I didn't know this actually. He's talking about 2014. Remember, that is the year that, um, that ISIS took over Iraq. It was also the year that oil prices would tank, as I said, like dramatically in a scary way for, for the petrostates uh, because of the shale revolution really hitting its stride, going down to 24 or $26 at the low. Okay, 2014, he said there was a video um, that went viral of an ISIS militant stomping his feet to signify ISIS's elimination of the Sykes-Picot line between Iraq and Syria. The Sykes-Picot line. You probably don't know what that is unless you're a student of history or you're in oil. Um, he says, we don't recognize this line and we never will. We will break all the borders, the ISIS militant says. What he's talking about is destroying the borders that the Allied forces drew up after World War I to divide these countries. Um, and instead, he's going to eliminate all the borders and it will all be the caliphate, is what he's basically saying. Okay, so this map in the Middle East, therefore, is more than a century old that we've been dealing with uh, since the end of the war. And it's basically, literally, a guy named Mark Sykes, who was a writer of travel books, a Brit, uh, and a Tory member of parliament, walked into the French embassy and sat down with Francois-Georges Picot, who's a senior French diplomat. And the two of them literally drew the lines that eventually the countries would, um, would observe. What this amounted to was, that was the end of the Ottoman Empire. So, right, think of the Middle East as the Persians, the Arabs, and the Turks. The Ottoman Empire is the Turks, and they had been there for hundreds of years, expanding their empire, in fact, all the way up to what is today Ukraine. Imagine. So, you might recall Russia fought with us in World War I. We were actually allies at that time. And it was after this that Russia would get, um, you know, part of the Ukraine. Well, it, it actually... Ottomans were all the way up into Crimea. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you might hear talk about how this border has been changing over time. Um, pull out your Ottoman Empire map and, and take a look at that. That's what they were under for a long time. Now they would be divided up into colonial spheres. And it truly is colonialism in its purest form. You know, the Brits would have something above a certain line. The French would have the other part. Um, and that's how it worked. So Ottomans to French and British in the Middle East. Um, yeah, well, and the Ottomans, I guess, were already broke before the war started. That's always a bad way to start. A good sign that uh, things are not going to go your way. At the end, let's recall that it was Germany and Austro-Hungary against Britain, France, and Russia. Um, and so Mr. Sykes and Mr. Pico decided the Ottoman Empire must cease to be. Um... With this, the Sultan uh, of the Ottoman Empire, in his role as Caliph, was a spiritual leader. At that time, he called for jihad, a holy war against the British. 
who were alarmed by the potential impact on the Muslim subjects of the British Empire in India and the protectorate in Egypt. In other words, they didn't want anyone getting any ideas or rebellion inside of their other territories. Um, so, 1915, um, they go to draw up the lines. There was general agreement and nothing less than a line in the sand, okay, for the post-war Middle East, new spheres under European control. Um, they look at what is present-day Israel. This is Haifa, all the way down to Kirkuk, Iraq, near the Persian frontier, north of the line is French, south of it British, if you're familiar with that region. <clears throat> okay, so basically from this time on, this is where you're going to see like modern Israel come into being, what, it was, this would be 30 years later. So this is before there's even an Israel. Um, but this would become very important later in time. It's history that you have to know or nothing's going to make any sense. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is, imagine little Israel in the center of all these Arab countries. And strangely, this almost seems providential in a, in a reverse way. They're the only country that doesn't really have resources early on. All of the countries around them are oil rich and natural gas rich. And Israel, for the longest time, had nothing. Until, you might know this, um, about 10 or 15 years ago, maybe a little longer, they discovered monster natural gas fields off the coast of Israel, the Tamar and the Leviathan natural gas fields. And this is a game changer for them to finally be numbered with the other petro states and have any chance of uh, competing. You, you probably know that right now there's a controversy about whether or not to send fuel into Gaza. And I was listening to the commentary this morning, um, and it was quite upsetting. You know, Anthony Blinken saying, now listen, this is all humanitarian aid, you know? Um, we're not, it's not going to go to Hamas. This is going to the people in Gaza. And I'm thinking, first of all, why on earth would we believe uh, Anthony Blinken or Hamas? I mean, I, who, who is the, who's the source for this? Who's the source for this? Who's on the ground in, in the Palestinian territories? Anyway, um, they can't run away. Well, this is great. I would love to watch the Palestinians fight a war without fossil fuels. That would be an excellent exercise. Why don't we try it out? Let's see how it goes. If they cut the fuel, it's the easiest thing you can do. It's the easiest thing you can do. But Blinken said, we can't do that because then we're going to lose our hospital you know, capacity and operations there in the, the Gaza Strip. You know, the war would have to stop. They're, it's very clear they're running out of fuel. Um, in every war in modern history, this is what you do. You cut the supply lines in a big way. Bigly. <laughs> Super bigly. Like a siege. Um, but Blinken's not willing to do that. And he said, well, you know what? Um, they said, can you guarantee that, you know, no money is going to go to terrorists? He's like, well, there's always a little spillage, you know? Uh, there's always a little, I'm like, spillage? Where, this is that approved word? Same with Ukraine. Same with Vietnam, right? When you send aid, how do you know where that aid is going? Supposedly, there's an estimate that like 30% of it is lost in fraud or graft or greed or whatever. It could be, it could be considerably more. How could we possibly know? Um, but it was an outrage. We didn't think twice about cutting the fuel lines in World War II. I mean, 
didn't think twice. Like, first of all, the Germans didn't make it to Baku, Azerbaijan, but they came awfully close. You should see the line on the map of how close they came to conquering Baku. If that would have happened, we would have really had a fight on our hands. We, we might have lost that war because uh, Baku is the oldest oil field in the world. I visited it. Um, I saw the original, you know, wooden pipeline that the Nobels and the Rothschilds built there in 1846. It's great. Um, but that is what he was after. The Germans didn't have it. So they had to make fuel, synthetic oil out of coal, because that's what they had with the Fischer-Tropes process. It's kind of famous. Well, the Allies dropped thousands of bombs onto all of the plants we could find that were making synthetic oil for them. Of course. And I mean, bomb them into the ground. And you should see, you know, the chart showing the German uh, consumption of oil. I mean, the war ended. It, it, was a, it was a free fall. And the war ended. Same with the Japanese. We absolutely blockaded them. And there was so little fuel, so little anything. They couldn't heat their homes in the wintertime. They, they could barely feed themselves, actually, uh, in Japan at the time. And um, there's actually a, a Japanese term for that. I would tell it to you, but even if I told you, it wouldn't, it would, it wouldn't make any sense to you. But it was like called, um, you know, patriot slimness. Patriot slimness. And it's a sacrifice you make for the country because we don't have fuel to run this country. But same thing, uh, if you look on a graph, just, just free fall, energy consumption, and the war ends, along with a few bombs. Yes, that's, that's right. But um, it's a big deal. Here's it from my, from my book, Oil and War, How the Deadly Struggle for Fuel in World War II Meant Victory or Defeat. Here's a quote from Field Marshal Erhard Milk, German Director of Air Armament. He said this, These synthetic oil plants are the worst possible place they could hit us. With them stands or falls our very ability to fight this war. After all, if the synthetic fuel plants are effectively attacked, not only our aircraft, but the tanks and submarines will also come to a standstill. Here's a quote from, and that's 1943, from General Adolf Gallen, commander of German fighter force. He says, quote, The raids of the Allied air fleets on the German fuel supply installations were the most important of the combined factors which brought about the collapse of Germany. It doesn't get much simpler than that. That's about as definitive as, as you can be. Then we find this piece on Japan. Yeah, so we cut them off. The Imperial Navy of Japan was forced to fuel some of its ships with alcohol. Navigational training was eliminated for pilots. The weather was severe with 45 consecutive days of below freezing temperatures, the coldest winter in 20 years. Fuel and food scarcities reduced the Japanese to near starvation. A campaign, a campaign of Yase Gaman, or Strength Through Slimness was designed to cloak deprivation in a mantle of patriotism, but it inspired few. People were eating chickweed, thistle, and mugwort. In fact, there was so little fuel, it was insufficient to cremate the dead in the last days of the war. That's how little fuel there was. And that's what winning wars look like. That's what you do. This is what's required. I mean, I, the, the Palestinians aren't starving. They're not freezing. Now's the time to cut the fuel at a minimum. All right, I have to get a break. You're listening to Jackie Daly. You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show. And before I move off in my oil and war, how the deadly struggle for fuel in World War II meant victory or defeat, I'll leave you with one uh, from 1985 from Mikhail Gorbachev, Soviet Communist Party. He says, quote, The party has put forward responsible tasks aimed at the acceleration 
of the development of our economy, and I shall tell you flatly that in order to be able to perform them, the country must have at its disposal the necessary resources of both oil and gas. Oil and gas will always be the object of our constant concern. And my favorite photo of Vladimir Putin is him at one of these, you know, Russian um, oil wells. And he does this. He'll stick his hand into the oil and dip it in and rub it across his face. You'll see a handprint on his face of oil uh, because, I mean, that is Mother Russia. If there were no oil, there would have been no Soviet Union. There would have been no Cold War. I mean, they could not possibly have competed for as long as they had. And imagine what a difference that is from how our history unfolded. This is impossible for us to understand. It's, it's impossible for us to relate to. They are wealthy by virtue of what's under their feet, where their great, 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 great grandpa settled nomadically, you know, 200 years ago, 400 years ago, 1,000 years ago. They didn't even know it was there. And then one day, we invent in the West, mostly uh, UK and, and uh, America and Germany, we invent things like the automobile and trains and ships. And because of this, people like the Russians and the Saudis benefit by where their nomadic ancestors just happened to settle. It's almost like a, a providential fluke. Then there's us. We invent things and we build things and we cultivate land. And it reminds me of um, one of my favorite scenes from The Last Kingdom where King Alfred, the first king of England, it's like 800 AD, is being invaded by the Vikings. And so he asked the Viking um, son, he's like, what are you doing here in England? And he says, I came here to make my wealth. And he said, no, you came here to take your wealth. Making wealth is done by you know, working the land and engaging in trade. You came to take your wealth, not make your wealth. And that's the difference. Um, that's that's the that's our way we build and grow things and trade things they don't have to do any of that but at the same time they are they're very much at the whim of uh producers around the world so um we still have the ability to be a superpower we have so much oil here we have enough oil we could actually get out of our national debt if you can believe that in fact i don't even know another plan does anyone else have a plan anybody uh that would actually work but we have to have people who understand why this is important. And the Green Movement just tries to drive a stake into the heart of America's superpower status. That's what the result would be. And that's where we would be. So <clears throat> that's why I do this show. People ask me, how did you do this? I'm like, well, I worked on Capitol Hill. I was focused on the so-called war on terror, realized it was almost all funded by the Middle East and people we called our allies, uh, the terrorism that is. And learned about the fracking revolution and realized this is our chance. This is our ticket. This is our way out of debt. This is our way to remain a superpower into this century. This is our way to cancel the trade deficit. It's, it was the answer to so many problems. So we had this massive bounty and then all these people who want to take it away from us. Um, I've told you before that when I was on Capitol Hill, the Senate did a report about all the money going through the green movement. It's over a billion dollars a year back then. And one-sixth of it that they could trace was foreign. One-sixth. Okay. The, the, the truth is, they, they're only seeing a little piece of it. They had two staffers on this, on the Senate side, for a couple of weeks. They don't know. That's just their best guess, based on what's disclosed. Okay. From there, um, the Science Committee 
did a study and found out that for every dollar Russia spent influencing the 2016 election, they spent 50 cents fighting against American oil and gas, whether it's funding pipeline protests or fracking protests, and asked the Department of the Treasury to investigate. Um, the Washington Post tried to debunk this idea, and I loved the debunking article. It was so ridiculous and over the top. Uh, trying to say there's just no proof that Putin is funding the Green Movement in the United States. Um, and they, they focused in on a specific firm uh, in Bermuda that they knew was bringing money in. Uh, there was an American family, billionaire family uh, in California that was in charge of this Bermuda operation. And uh, the, the, the allegation was that the firm had ties to institutions in the UK that had ties to Russian oligarchs. Okay, it's, that's basically the tenuous um, allegation. And the, the post goes on and on about how that's just not good enough. That's not proof of anything. Okay, um, here's the deal. Number one, uh, they're talking about NATO Secretary General Anders Rasmussen um, was quoted in 2014 as saying that Russia, quote, engaged actively with the so-called non-governmental organizations, environmental organizations working against shale gas to maintain European dependence on imported Russian gas, unquote. This is, again, the NATO Secretary General is telling you that Russia's funding the European anti-fracking green movement. Then they cite to Hillary Clinton. I love this, and I, I remember this. Hillary Clinton, in a private speech in Edmonton, Alberta, which is the oil capital of Canada, by the way, in 2014, alluded to Russian disinformation efforts. Quote, we were up against Russia, pu- Russia pushing oligarchs and others to buy media. We were even up against phony environmental groups. And I'm a big environmentalist, but these were funded by the Russians to stand against any effort. Oh, that pipeline, that fracking, whatever will be a problem for you. And a lot of the money supporting that message is coming from Russia. Yeah, that's Hillary Clinton. Okay. Not me. I mean, this is before she had Donald Trump to, you know, scream Russia, Russia, Russia. She's, she's a secretary of state at the time. And she's telling you that. Um, and apparently that speech was revealed when Russia hacked the account of Clinton campaign manager John Podesta and turned over his emails to WikiLeaks. And this is where, here's the debunking. Okay, get ready. But Nick Merrill, a Clinton spokesman, said she was not talking about Russia funding groups in the United States. I remember the speech she said in an email. She was talking about proposed pipelines in Europe. Okay, fine. But what stops them from doing the same thing in the United States? Why? We're, we're the number one competitor. We're the number one producer. Why would they not? It's, it's legal, by the way. There's nothing illegal about what I'm talking about. Whether it's, you know, funding Russian television and having them constantly blasting about how hydraulic fracturing or fracking is so bad for you, which isn't true. Uh, or whether it's Al Jazeera, which is Qatar, doing the exact same thing, nonstop beating up on oil and gas, even though it's funded by petrostates that are competing against our oil and gas. And notice they never attack their practices, which are nowhere near as environmentally sound as ours. It's only us that they have the criticism for. Anyway, all, all that to say, Hillary Clinton is confirming it here. Come on. And it's mostly legal. Um, but there's so much more. Um, a national intelligence report issued January 6, 2017, 
about this is from the the science committee this was lamar smith a congressman from san antonio who shared this about russia's efforts to influence the political debate in the u.s that report noted that rt the russian news channel quote runs anti-fracking programming highlighting environmental issues and the impacts on public health uh, on and on and on okay so anyway the the washington post here at the very end um gives four pinocchios to the claim that the Russians fund the anti-fracking or the, the green movement in the U.S. There's no debunking in this entire article. There's no debunking in the, in the whole. It's a non-debunking debunking like most of them. So um, there's actually a term that dates back to the 70s for environmentalists. Watermelons. Green on the outside, red on the inside. Okay. It's known. It is known as they say on Game of Thrones. It is known. It's been around for a long time. All right, I think I have to take a break, What, no matter what I want to do, right? Yes. All right. You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show. We'll be right back. 